Welcome back to another edition of Bound for Justice. I'm Charlotte Wilson. I'm Rachel Rasman. And I'm Sharissa Foley. How's it going, ladies? The team is back together. Woo woo, 2020. <laughs> it's first time in a long time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we good to have you back, Sharissa. Thank you. Glad that the crew's all together again. So has anything exciting happened with you lately? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> I did have a birthday recently. And so it's Happy always birthday. Thank you. How old are you? I'm just I, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you never ask a lady her age, Rachel. How dare you? <laughs> but it, yes, it was recently my birthday, and um, it's kind of nice to to get all the birthday greetings and people to say happy birthday to you. It's a it's a nice way to celebrate. And um, I decided I was going to do something fun for myself for my birthday. So for the first time, I went and had a float spa. Have either of you done that before? No. Do tell. I'm doing one tomorrow, coincidentally, oh. with a friend. So, so what is a float spa? So you you get in this um, special pod that's filled with about 10 inches of water and like 12,000 pounds of Epsom salt. And you float in it for an hour and it's supposed to have all these health benefits and it's supposed to help relax you. Um, and it's supposed to be like a good relaxation experience. So it's 10 inches of water? Yeah, it, it seemed like it was a little bit more than that because I was like concerned like, gosh, 10 inches of water isn't that much. But <laughs> I was like, I'm going <laughs> to... It's like being in a kiddie pool. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, <laughs> how's this going to work? It, se- it said 10 inches of water in like the pamphlet or whatever, but it seemed like it was a little bit more than that. Okay, see, I kept thinking that they were these like really big tanks that you had to get inside of, and <laughs> like you know, a vat. Like a, I don't Salt know. Vat. Like I had this idea of you know those like um, tanks that you, that you know you used to put like the oh, you know, gear like on the and jump in. Kind yes. of thing or like the deep sea divers. <laughs> yes, that's what I was thinking of, like one of those training tanks or yeah. something. And that's about it. No, it kind of looks like like <clears throat> a pod, like a kind of like a big egg. Like almost. what Mork came in. And Mark and Mindy? I think so. Yeah, a little bit more along those lines. Sharice is not old enough, clearly. <laughs> I mean, I know. You can I probably know. guess her age. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for calling me out. <laughs> but um, but it had like a lid that you could close it and they played music in there and it had like a light and you could change the color of the light. Um. So anyway, I will go back. If you guys have never tried a float spa, I highly recommend it. Check Groupon plug for Groupon. Sometimes there are good deals on there. So, um, so yeah, it was really nice. It was relaxing. And uh, I scheduled to go back for another float. So we shall see. Very interesting. So you're going tomorrow, Rachel, right? Yep. I hope yes. you enjoy it. You'll have to share with us how you how you like it. Well, I'm going with a friend and they had different options. Like you could go to the open pool or two different cabins. And then there were these there were like actual tanks that looked terrifying to me like where you like sealed yourself in them I did not do that I wanted to go to the cabin because it seemed about my style yeah all right well now I'm jealous I feel left out well you're gonna gonna sign up peer pressure peer pressure we'll we'll do one together (laughs) not really so the book that we are talking about this week is raising white kids bringing up children in a racially unjust America Um, and it's written by Jennifer Harvey This book came out um, just a little over two years ago. So this was published in January of 2018. And this book is described as a book for families and communities that are committed to equity and justice 
and those who want to equip their children to be active and able participants in a racially diverse yet tension-filled society. And Jennifer Harvey, um, she actually has her doctorate, she, and she's a professor of religion at Drake University. She's a, a you know educator, activist, public speaker. She's also an ordained minister through the American Baptist churches, and she has a another previously published book called Dear White Christians. So this this book was a book that was on my list, and I think I'm the one who who picked this one out. And I know we're going to go through um, some details in the book, but overall, did you guys have any sort of, you know, general thoughts or feelings about the book? I really had different thoughts about some of the advice they gave on being white and how you should address, you know, being white and being different, but still having pride in that as we'll get into that later. But Mm -hmm. but they really talked about more of um, how whites could be more involved Mm -hmm. because there were there were some other issues that came up at schools that we'll probably get to later. Yeah. Yeah. I felt maybe a little nervous about reading this book. I was really interested in reading it, but um, even though we've we've read other books about diversity that were written by white people, um, for whatever reason, I think maybe because of the the um, aspect of this pertaining to kids, I felt a little bit nervous about it, and that it was so focused on how do you raise white kids, you know, in a in a in a racial society like ours, but. Overall, I thought it was a really good book, and I, I think the way that she structured the book, like some other books that we've read in the past, it's definitely a digestible book. It's one that you can pick up and leave it on your shelf. You can, you know, maybe start in through certain areas. Um, it has really good key takeaways, but then there's a lot of detail in there. So when maybe when you come to a tough conversation or you have a particular incident in your life, you can go back and, and reference the book. I noticed that when I read it, I was reflecting a lot on oh man, I don't think I would have helped handled that situation the way they did. Or mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have acted that way or, or handled that correctly. So as the, as the mother of a white child, <laughs> well, I that, really took it very personally. <laughs> that's a great segue because I do think one of the things that we should talk about really, you know, right off the bat is that each of us has different kids that are different shades of color, you know, you know, varying shades of color. And I'm just wondering, you know, how does that affect you know, the way that we read this book? Um, it, it, uh, I did have some preconceived ideas about this just because my kids are one quarter white. So, you know, they, they identify as people of color and they are seen in society as brown people. And so I thought, well, I'm not really sure how much this is going to apply to me. But then when I thought about it again, I was like, well, they are Um, being raised in and are in a predominantly white culture and community. So maybe there are some things that I can take away from this. So initially I was like, "Eh, I don't know if this applies to me, but in the end there is some useful stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Just when you were saying that your kids are three quarters white, when I first was talking to your mom and like the grandkids were coming over, I had said something about trying to figure out who somebody's husband was. or I was trying to figure out the relationship between everybody. And your mom was like, you seriously can't tell whose dad is black and whose dad is white. It's <laughs> so obvious. Kind of obvious. But I was like, so, uh, I was, I'm so clueless to everything. I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> but I just thought that was so funny. Your mom was like, really? <laughs> so, so yes, there are, there are various varying shades for sure. Yes. Varying shades. Yes. So when I was reflecting on um, this question, it, my, of course, my kids are biracial. They're, 
I guess they're three they're quarters three, white. They're three quarters so white. So they're and opposite. They're the opposite of my kids, where my kids are three quarters black. Right. Yeah. So they, you know, they got, we say they got a little color in them. Yeah. Light, light they, brown. They, <laughs> they darken up in the sun just a little bit. <laughs> Tanning is not a problem. Um, and, but, but of course, we have a lot of conversations about race and justice and equality in our household. That's just part of the conversation that's just every day for us. So I guess I kind of challenged myself a little bit, though, because it's easy for me to make the assumption that, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, this these aren't things that they necessarily struggle with, not more than, you know, normal. Yes, they have their own racial identity that they're working through. um, But I'm sure, you know, this is no big deal. But I think I had to catch myself a little bit on that and say, oh, don't don't assume that you you know Mm -hmm. what your kids are Mm -hmm. processing or how Mm -hmm. they're thinking. Um, just because you talk about it doesn't mean that you might not have to continually go back and make sure that they feel like they've got an environment for sort of expressing what they're processing. Because it could be the flip side, right? They know that they're not white. Mm -hmm. They know that they come from a heritage, um, an African-American heritage, but everybody else treats them like they're white. Right. So what does that do? How How does that sort of work? So their experience and their growth and their development will be completely different from my kids because mm-hmm. the way that they're perceived in the world is, is almost opposite. So, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. But I'm glad that I'm thankful that there's such diversity within our own family. You know, mm-hmm. I think that there's, you know, you wouldn't just see, you know, our kids walking down the street and automatically assume that they were cousins. Yeah. You know, so, and I love that. I, I love, I love that. So I think it's great. Anything else? Nothing. Okay. Um, Okay. So I mentioned earlier that one of the nice things about the way that this book is structured is that every every chapter um, at the end, um, she almost provides like sort of a recap or she calls them takeaways, Um, sort of the key high level points um, that she made in detail throughout the chapter. Um, Were there any particular takeaways that she called out that struck out, stuck out to you guys and, and were really meaningful? Um, I think there was one particular point. I think it was chapter three um, where she said racial identity does not predetermine who we are or become, but racial identity development results from a relationship between the internal emotions, understandings and so on and the external messages, experience with others, environment. And I kind of felt like I could relate to that in my own way. You know, I've always said my race doesn't make me who I am. And I am who I am because that's who I am. And a lot of times I think there's a lot of cultural stereotypes that come along with who you are and what your racial identity is. And it's not because I'm a certain race. So the racial identity and development, it, you know, it happens for different people in different ways, just like we were talking about our kids. And, you know, Charlotte, your experiences for your kids will be different than mine. And that development and that identity it's very personal and it's, it's a progression and everybody develops at their own timing um, depending on their experience. And, you know, I wonder how many white people even have a racial identity or have any racial development that they, you know, work on or, or think about, are they even aware? And as a parent, it's my job to give my kids the right tools and it's the same for right, white parents. You know, we have to give our kids the tools to have that racial identity and to have that development, healthy development, mm-hmm. that is. So that point kind of stuck out to me quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really obvious in this book is that 
it, um, <clears throat> I guess you, I guess I kind of make the assumption that if you're, if you're picking this book up, you have gotten to a certain point of recognition or awareness of your own racial identity. And now you're just trying to figure out how to translate that for your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's kind of an assumption that either, I mean, and I guess that's a good point that this isn't necessarily just for kids. There's a lot in this book that really can be applied to anybody who hasn't really gone through their own process of of identity. The title of that chapter was, What Does a Healthy White Kid Look Like? Yes, I thought the title of that chapter was rather interesting. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) What did you think when you first saw that, that chapter heading? Did anybody, did anybody have any thoughts about that? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and I think I, I'm seeing the expression on your face, even like describing it that way. You're kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Um, and she kind of talks about that in the book, like the discomfort of recognizing that you're white. And she tells a story. Do you do you remember the story, Rachel, where she talks about the little girl who came home? And I think they they were I think it may have there may have been a history lesson about whether it was ra- prejudice or some injustice that had occurred with another racial group in America. And the little girl comes home to her mom and says, I'm so glad we're white. Yeah. Right. Right. She was like, oh, right. Do we say that? Right. And yeah. so it was sort of that awareness that what does that mean? And and sort of what are if, if you're sort of operating from a, a, um, a place of shame that you would be very easy to have emotional response and kind of shut that down, shut that whole conversation down and just say like, we don't say that. Yeah, right. Is that, is that called like white guilt? That, yeah. I think that's what the white, label is. White fragility. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, and I thought about that with my child because I know that a lot of times she'll have questions or we'll have discussions if we're watching the news. And I sometimes worry about going too over the top about things because then there have been times where I almost feel like I'm pushing her away from the whole idea because she's just, doesn't want to hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I I was interested in how, like, what would a healthy white child be? And how do these parents raise these kids? Because, right. you know, because I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get by with right. mine. Like, we're just. Well, it was interesting at the end of the book. So she, so there are a few things that she calls out in that particular um, chapter. I'm looking it up to see if I can find this specific um, call out. So she does talk about the different stages of racial identity and she refers mm-hmm. back to um, Dan, is it Daniel Beverly Tatum? Yes. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Yes. From um, the kids in the cafeteria, yes. which we yes. talked about a, mm-hmm. a few months ago. Um, so she references sort of those stages of, of development, but then and, and calls out that it's an ongoing journey mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not necessarily linear. It's kind of all over the place and it's different for everybody. Um, but then on page 127. I'm looking it up here. OK, so she returns back. So once they sort of explore what that is, um, she returns back to. The statement, the I'm so glad statement from um, her, her from the from the daughter. And I think it was her whether whether it was her daughter or a friend's daughter. And um, she starts one of the paragraphs by saying this recognition is positive for so many reasons. First, it's evidence that she has hasn't already been shamed into silence about race or whiteness. I can imagine many white second graders not being willing to take the risk in making this statement to their parent. Um, so then she goes on to 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 um, sort of position it in a slightly different way that she does recognize that there is privilege in society and, and in her second grade um, knowledge and, and ability to express that that's how it came out. Mm-hmm. And it's a perfect opportunity to help her understand what it means to live in a racist mm-hmm. society and understand her position of privilege 
and what that means for um, how she she works, you know, um, towards justice and towards, you know, fighting racism and racist attitudes. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on that? Going back to the the title of the chapter, what does a healthy white kid look like? I, I, I wasn't quite sure how to take that statement or that phrase. And after, you know, reading through the the chapter, it's it's not a I think that there's a there's the opportunity for white people to identify themselves as white. I think a lot of people, white people don't understand that. Yes, you have a race. I think a lot of times they just see race thing at the race thing as all that's for you people of color. And so you have to take that on yourself to identify, well, who am I? How does, how does that fit into society? What's my role? You know, what's, what's my heritage and how does that apply to how I'm helping in the world? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that when I read it, there were so many different parts of it where I was uncomfortable reading it as a white person because I would be like, oh, I should have, like, I should have handled it this way or oh, I don't know if that would, if that would fly or if that would work with, with my daughter. And so I think that it, this was probably one of the more uncomfortable books again for me to read because mm-hmm. I think because I saw myself in it so much, like I'm trying so hard, but yeah, maybe I didn't handle that the right way. And um, like, maybe my child isn't being raised the correct way, or I'm mm-hmm. not doing this, doing this right. And I should have made more of an issue of certain, certain aspects of of her development and of racial issues, because I think I try to be honest with her, but I really don't build up that, that whole white is its own identity. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we, how do we include ourselves in this history or how do we, how do we support people and still keep our identity? Mm-hmm. So it is okay <laughs> to be who you are. <laughs> um, so this is this week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. week and there are lots of interesting quotes from people on social media. Um, you know, the, we might lovingly refer to as once and dones. You post <laughs> once about it and then that's yep. it. Um, but there was somebody that um, somebody within my social network that posted, they made a comment about their child. And basically his whole point was that he, despite the fact that they really hadn't made a point of bringing up a lot of, having a lot of conversations about race, his child was interested in um, taking part in a particular um, tourist site that um, related to Martin Luther King Jr. when they were on a family trip. And in the comments of his quote or in his, of his, his um, post that he shared, someone wrote, um, it's really important to make sure you, you teach your kids about racism because they're going to hear about it anyhow. And of course, then that ignited a whole storm about don't tell me how to raise my kids. Oh boy. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because when uh, obviously when I read this statement, I I understood, I think, what he was trying to say. But I, I saw exactly what that person saw, too, that you're avoiding the conversation. And I think the idea was that it wasn't time or it wasn't, it was, you know, it was too early, you know, maybe it was too hard of a, you know, sort of like when you talk to kids about sex, you know, like what's the appropriate age. Right. And I do think Harvey makes a point of saying that at every stage of development, kids have an understanding of this and not talking about it is actually could potentially create, do more harm. And it it could stunt their development. I mean, the earlier you start just talking about it on their level in ways that they can understand, the better they're going to develop healthy thought processes and viewpoints and um it's it's never too early to 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 talk about the right things Mm -hmm. 
Last night, my daughter and I were actually talking about she has to do a presentation for Black History Month. All the kids, I guess, have to write a report on something they don't really know a lot about. And she said, maybe we can get together or we can do a little trip as a family, two of us. Um, (laughs) Maybe we can maybe we can schedule it out. I don't know. Um, And she said we can go somewhere where they where there's like a something with black history or like go to a museum or something like that so we can learn about stuff. And I, I I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Like we went to the um, underground railroad museum or freedom museum in Cincinnati and we've gone to other places, but the really good museums are really good places to go as far as good being kind of in the, in the thick of it. Yeah. Historical richness maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Are are very South Mm -hmm. aren't really close. And so I think that, in her mind, we were just going to be able to go anywhere. Like, let's go to, you know, this place and see if we can find something. Whereas I was like, well, you know, Montgomery, I think, has some good stuff, but mm-hmm. we aren't going to get there really quickly. So. so, but I was glad that she asked and had that interest in in um, learning more about stuff. But I'm I'm also glad that I didn't mention it on social media. Apparently, mm. <laughs> <laughs> are you feeling uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah. I don't want your friends commenting. Well, I think it's cool that you bring that up because that's a prime example of um, if your kids are asking about it, you know, do your best to take advantage of those opportunities. If their interest is peaked, if they if they are interested, jump on it and, you know, take advantage of the opportunity. I think that's great. And I, I think um, we hadn't mentioned this before, I don't believe, but we had gone to a speaker a couple mm-hmm. months ago and he mentioned that too he got like the inoculating your kids again about yeah, racism yeah. where like they're going to get to it eventually so um or they're going to hear about it or they already have heard about it so you've got to address it too yep okay moving on um so uh, one of the other chapters that um, harvey has in the book is titled diversity is confusing And she talks about, uh, she relays, again, another story about kids where in this particular story, the the child, the main character, was called racist by some of her classmates because she asked for a brown crayon. Um, And I know we've talked about this in the past about we oftentimes will hear our kids use the term, well, that's so racist or you're being racist. And I, I don't know, are you guys still hearing a lot of that from your kids and how are you handling those conversations? I thought when I first read it, I was, I, I thought it was really interesting because I have heard things like that. But I don't know that my child has ever been offended or taken like, oh my gosh, am I really racist? It was, it's almost like a phrase that is just kind of thrown around at school now. Mm-hmm. So I think we probably need to step back and say, you know, when you say that's racist, do you understand what that really means? Because now you're just kind of throwing it around like it's a funny word and mm-hmm. it, it's not, it's not funny. Like the, where it comes from isn't funny. And so whenever, I mean, in our, actually in our family, my, my child's big thing is that if I ever ask for anything white, Mm. like, like if I go (laughs) to chip, like if I go and get white rice over brown rice somewhere, she's like, that's racist. (laughs) And so it's on one hand, it's showing that like whenever white is the preference, she notices that, Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, it's like we can't just be throwing these words around and not having any meaning behind them, making light of it, because then it is taking kind of the power, not necessarily the power, but the meaning behind that word away. Mm. And then it's you know, making it a joke of it. So, yeah. so there is a lot of um, a lot of growth to be had in that area <laughs> in my home. I think a lot of times the reason why kids say that's racist is because they don't have a true, genuine understanding of what that word is. I think there's a lot of adults 
that don't have a true understanding of of what that is. And so I think in their in their understanding, that's one way that they can call out something that maybe isn't quite right, even though it's not the quite quite the right phrase or or terminology or 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 way to label it. That's their way of that's their easiest, quickest way of of saying, oh, something's not quite right here. And my kids have done that, too. Um, And I think there's a couple things that I try to do when I encounter that. I try to call out, hey, what you just said, that's not really the right word to use for that. Like, that's not really racist. And then I try to give them, you know, the correct term for the situation. Like if it's, you know, being prejudiced versus being racist, those are two different things that I think get confused a lot. And then try to give them an example of something that is racist so that they can kind of try to differentiate between, you know, what is and what isn't. And sometimes that results in some really good conversation, which is great. I try to ask them questions to kind of spur on conversation. But I think calling it out and saying, hey, I hear what you're trying to say here. That's maybe not the right word to use. Let's try to define it for what it really is. And then um, try to give them some words that they can understand at, at their level. So I think a lot of kids just call it out that way, just depending on the situation. But in in our experience, it's been, well, that's not quite the right term. I think you're trying to call out something that's an injustice, but that's not the right word for it. Yeah. I, yeah, I would agree. We definitely, it creates a lot of conversation. Yeah. I think one thing that we also have to keep in mind is that our kids aren't as good at code switching. Like mm-hmm. I know that I will be with a group of friends and say something or somebody will say something to me. Um, mostly somebody says something to me and, (laughs) and it wouldn't be something that would be okay to say in another crowd. So I think that, um, like if, a just to throw this out there, a stereotype that I often get is people kind of give me a hard time because I run late to everything. And so I have friends who are like, oh, that's similar to another stereotype. And, mm. and CPT so, time is yes, what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> do, do, do white people know about CPT time or CP time, CPT? I don't. I suppose some of them do. I did not because I didn't realize that was a stereotype until I was being made fun of about it. Oh, OK. When, so, when did yeah, that happen? Interesting. It was just like I mean, it was just a couple of years ago. But now it's also come back because um, I have more friends who have acknowledged that I run late to everything. <laughs> And so they're like, oh, that's right. You're on that CPT time. Or, yeah. And then they'll even say things like, I got a text the other day that said, be here at this time. And I don't mean CP time. Yes. And so I texted back. And, Every family reunion. Yeah. You know, I mean, pretty much. Well, I texted back and I was like, what's <laughs> CP time? Reinforcing like, stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that kids don't get that. Like, yeah. Like you can say that with a certain crowd and it's kind of, you know, it's understood or it's like, I almost feel like if it's not your joke. <laughs> like mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. if I'm not making the joke because I'm not, you know, calling somebody out on something, yep. um, then you kind of have a different understanding of it. Or like, yeah, okay, I, I run late to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. And and so then like the CP time, I had a friend text me. The we other, could call it RR time. Right. Well, the friend, <laughs> <laughs> even I guess that's true. I should Sorry. call it RR time. <laughs> but a friend texted me the other day and said, um, all right, Black Rachel, what oh, time no. are you going to arrive? Oh, my gosh. And he expected me there in like 10 minutes. And I was like 45 minutes away. And I was like, yeah, I'll tell you in a little bit. Like sometimes I wait and I'm like, oh, I just got this message. So um, <laughs> nobody ever Sorry, does that. I, I was busy. Right, driving. <laughs> Sorry, just saw this. Yeah. And so I think that our kids also see, this, see us doing that. 
and are like, oh, no, it's OK to say this or it's OK to do that, whereas they don't quite get that. Not all the time. It's not always OK to say that or, you know, you've got to really know your audience, like they said in, um, in White Fragility, even she talked mm-hmm. about how you have to know your audience and what you can and can't say. So so I think for kids, we need to give them a little bit more. We have to understand that where they're coming from, too, where they're seeing us do all, all these right. different things. Mm-hmm. And well, to me, I, honestly, I think a lot of what she talks about, it's all about the way that we filter our own feelings and our own identity and what we're processing through the experiences and the words that we hear our kids sharing. So if we haven't done our work yep. um, in some of these areas, it's going to be obviously it's going to be nearly impossible for us to guide our kids through some of this, too. And that we need to have an, like you just said, we have to have an awareness of sort of what we're what we're kind of carrying with us and what are what we're mirroring back to our kids right. and that kids are far more astute than what we usually give them credit for. Right. They right. pick up on a lot. They hear a lot more than what I think that they hear. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to our, our time. Okay. So yes. <laughs> I think this must be like rest and relaxation time because you're Ooh. just, you know, you're chill. You're, you'll right. get there when yeah. you get there. Right. So yes. rest and relaxation. Right. I always <laughs> act like there is. Like, I always try to hope that I'm going somewhere where somebody doesn't have access to the traffic because I'm like, oh, I got caught up. There must have been an accident. <laughs> and well, you're giving away all your secrets. Yeah. Now, if you ever if I'm ever running late to something and I say there's an accident, there was not an accident. Probably like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there was probably not a traffic issue. OK, so heading towards um, one of the final chapters of the book. Actually, this this is the final chapter of the book minus the conclusion. The final chapter is titled What Does Resistance Look Like? And this and in this particular chapter, she talks about an incident that she had with a teacher where and I think um, if I remember correctly, this was the incident where there was a um, they were celebrating perhaps a Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it ended up being a rather I would call insensitive. Uh, there were some insensitive racist um, things that were done in terms of making maybe Indian headdresses. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I think her child came home with one and she was like, oh, You're like, oh crap. Okay. Now, what do, I, what do I do about this? But <laughs> she talks but she talks through um, sort of the the response that she decided to have in terms of reaching out to the teacher and explaining to the teacher that this particular activity was was racist mm-hmm. and carried with it a lot of. Um, a lot of implications about Thanksgiving. What you know, we all we know a lot of the misinformation that we've all heard about Thanksgiving and the idea that this this idea we have in our head about the Pilgrims, the Native Americans, and um, she she was sort of calling that out as an opportunity to to exercise resistance and um, take take action in those small moments. Um, have you guys ever had anything like that that's come up with your kids that you've had to deal with? I had a similar incident, not with my child, but with witnessing something that I thought, and I'm very similar to um, what you're discussing. And I mentioned to somebody, I said, I don't, I don't think this is okay. And then everybody said, well, you're just overreacting. You know, Mm. you don't know. They're just being innocent and this isn't a big deal. And you you always have to make everything about race. And so then I had to, I had to call another friend and I was like, am I taking this the wrong way? Do you think this is wrong? And I called another white friend. Who said no? That that's way that's way wrong. <laughs> that mm-hmm. she and that friend. They said I just sent it to another friend, and they thought it was awful too. <laughs> so so I was like, okay, there's two people backing me up on this. But then at that point, like, I don't. I know that I for sure did not address it with the person that I saw it with mm-hmm. because it was kind of like I don't think that this is going to be a helpful 
conversation. Yeah. I don't think this is going to be anything that we'll be able to work through. This is going to cause more harm than, than anything. Um, and then it's going to be, oh, Rachel's that person. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of a, an area I have to tread lightly on sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, especially being white. Cause like, oh, why is this your fight? Why are you, why do you have to bring this up all the time? Or it's always about race and you know, you're, what do you have invested in this? And, um, a friend of mine had even said one time, when you're getting involved in all this stuff, people probably think it's weird when they see your child because she's basically transparent. Like she's so white. And the person was like, nobody knows why you have anything invested in this. Like you don't have a biracial child. You don't have any. And well, that's so th- interesting. Sorry. That just gets me very like, I don't know, a little riled up because that goes back to that assumption that the only people who should be invested in mm-hmm. justice and equality are people who are being discriminated against. Right. Whereas we all know the the reverse is that it really takes all of us working against inequality to, to, to move the needle. Right. And I think that then it's kind of people giving that excuse for themselves. Well, I don't have any, anything in this mm-hmm. or, or look, look, look what Rachel's doing and how Rachel acts. Nobody wants to be that person. And oh, so gosh, like, Rachel, <laughs> now you're making up stories. I was like, that was, that was a joke. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it is where you, where you kind of see how other people do things and you're like, okay, I'm watching how they did it. I don't know if that's the best way to go about it, but mm-hmm. how can I adjust it so that I can, I can handle it in a different way so that maybe it's heard a little bit differently or, mm-hmm. or something. Well, I think that's, a really good wrap up because that kind of circles back to the whole point of this book, right? Is like, how do you help your kids see themselves in, in, in a, in a racist white supremacist society that we live in, but find, find an effective way to, to develop a healthy identity and also understand your place and, and the struggle and see it as part, part of your responsibility and part of um, uh, your part in it and where you can take action versus sitting on the sideline going, you know, shrugging your shoulders going, well, not my fight to what fight. could I have done? Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, I do think, um, I do think this is a good book. Um, I think alike a lot of the other books that we've covered in the past, um, there are a lot of um, common themes and things that we've read, um, common things that we've read before, but she does do a really nice job. I think of, of, um, sort of distilling it or, or filtering it through a different lens specifically around parents who are really seeking guidance on how they can help their kids. I thought it would also be a good book for like educators because I know yes. that, like just people who are dealing with kids and trying mm-hmm. to give kids information or, you know, we're with kids on a regular basis. Yeah. So it would be a good book for someone to read. Well, yeah, because she does have several stories about incidences that happen in school with kids and the reactions that the teachers had. And I think we've right. probably all had those experiences before where something is said and it's not it's it's said um, from a place of innocence and and um, with no malintent, but you know the, the the teacher and whatever shame or whatever baggage they have about around race and identity kind of latches onto that and overreacts. Yeah, and again, turn it turns into a shame trigger and people shut down and don't talk. So let's not do that because right. <laughs> all adults around kids are just uh, feeding all this information. Generally, we've got to be more. Yeah. We've got to be more aware of what we're feeding to kids. Yes. Yes. All right, so let's move on to taking action. Have you, either of you, ever heard of the Columbus Blessing Boxes? Are you familiar with what those are? Have you heard of them? No. Tell me more. So (laughs) um, the Blessing Boxes, they are outdoor cabinets in public places all around Columbus. I think that they've even started to expand to some rural areas um, close to Columbus, but um, they're stocked with non-perishable food items, um, toiletry items, baby supplies, and anything 
that could be considered a blessing to someone else who might be in need. And items are anonymously donated and anonymously received. Um, you can go and drop stuff off at the blessing box and somebody can come along and and look to see if there's something in there that they, they might be um, in need of. And there's just one rule, leave what you can and take what you need. So I feel like that's really co- a cool thing, especially to get kids involved in, to see how you can do something to help the community. Um, and they're all over. And so, you know, you could even make a, a day of it to see how many blessing boxes you can donate to. But That'd I think it's a really fun. cool idea um, just to put some good out into the community. So how do we find them? Right. That was my question. <laughs> oh, so, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, they do have um, a Facebook page. If you just search Columbus Blessing Boxes, um, their page will come up and then all their locations are listed there. And they'll put out um, like this p- particular location is low. You know, if you're going to be donating, this location could could use some help or um, and they're, I think they're working to continue to expand. So it's kind of like the free mm. little library, if you yeah. guys have heard of those where yep. people leave books. So it's the same idea, but it's just to, to help help people in need. And then it's anonymous. So I know sometimes people may not um, feel comfortable reaching out for help, especially if they just need a little something here or there. And, and this might give them the opportunity to get what they need. So. Hmm. Love it. Something that I heard one time or I read one time about when you donate items is that maybe you don't need to donate. Like you have to think about who you're donating to. And so maybe it's not the same product that you would buy or who might because um, said like a lot of places, if it's in a high minority area, they aren't going to want the same hair products that you have. Okay. And so you should you should like look at other (laughs) pair products when you're donating things. Yeah. Or like. so think outside the box, like maybe you wouldn't necessarily use that or want that. You can that, never but. go wrong with Eco Styler. I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess if you're a female, get stuff for men. Like, I mean, just really yeah. think about what other people could use. Yeah. Good point. So even Good if they point. are not like you. <laughs> Good point. Good awareness. Because I, I read it somewhere and I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> like. I always just donate for myself, basically. You know, whatever I use, I'm, everybody must use that. So, yeah. Very good point. All right, moving on to In the News. Now, I have been wanting to see a movie that you guys apparently had already seen. So I'm glad that somebody called me and invited me. <laughs> that was kind. Um, but, but now Just Mercy is out, and you guys both had... Uh, news about that. I don't, I feel uncomfortable crying in public a lot because I'm, I sob. Um, I ugly cry all the time. <laughs> and so I was kind of holding off on seeing it, but I want to hear what you guys think about it. Cause I'd heard an interview on the radio with Jamie Foxx, I believe. So he said it makes people want to a- be an activist when they read yeah. things. It did. I mean, I sat in that movie. So, so f- first of all, Just Mercy is really, it's the story of Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And Just Mercy tells the story of a number of inmates who are on death row in the Alabama State Prison. Um, and one of the primary characters that Stevenson is fighting for is Walter McMillan, um, who was accused of, of a murder of an 18-year-old girl in his hometown. Um, and come to find out the, um, the testimony and the evidence that they had against him was it, there were holes all the way through it. So they focus the story on Walter McMillan. They also feature the story of a number of other inmates who were, um, who were on death row. 
Um, and it was incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with this statement from Jamie Foxx that absolutely I'm sitting there watching the credits going, okay, watching a movie is one thing. I don't get credit for watching a movie. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do when I walk out of the theater? That right. is exactly how I felt. You know, I was wondering, you know, what opportunities are there here in the Columbus area to get involved? Is, is there an organization um, like the Equal Justice Initiative here in Columbus that you could even just to volunteer um, like administrative time to help them file stuff or, you know, whatever to help clean their office or, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. But what is something locally that, you know, you could actually put your hand to to help make a difference in somebody's life? Yeah. You know, because Brian Stevenson was the only one that those death row inmates had. He pulled up those old cases. And at first they were all like, whatever you're you can't we've had so many lawyers in here they haven't been able to help us you know they gave up on us what makes you different and he did not give up he had to prove himself to those inmates he almost was fighting harder mm-hmm. than they than they were because they had given up at that point and in their position i i might do the same thing yeah but i thought that his resolve to not give up brian stevenson i thought that that was amazing that he 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 had such a a passion you know, about what he was doing that he he didn't give up. So, yeah, where are there yeah. opportunities where we can get involved here so locally? Actually, I think there are a couple of organizations and I and the name is not coming to me immediately. I didn't look it up before the podcast, um, but I'll try and look them up and um, include them in the, the show notes. But there is one in particular that I'm thinking of. Um, I know that there's a young man who has started something here locally. He's got an organization. You know, the other thing that hit me. So we went to see the movie. As a family. So my husband and then my two daughters um, and their ages 10 and 13. And there were some intense scenes in the movie. There, this is These are death row inmates. Not all of them got out. Um, there was one inmate in particular who actually went to the chair. And so they actually show a scene. Mm-hmm. They show everything that leading up to what happens. And then they they do actually show the scene where he dies. Um, they 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 do it in a very tasteful way, mm-hmm. but I but it's still incredibly impactful. It was, yeah, it was whoa. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of hit me just in terms of I you know I'm sitting there watching the movie and we're going on and on and then like I'm and then all of a sudden it hits me I'm like oh my gosh like I don't think my kids have ever seen anything like this before. Yeah. So I think it was definitely a little shocking to them. Did they say anything? How did they react? Well, it's funny because, you know, my (laughs) girls, they have very different personalities. One is very open and shares everything. One is very reserved. Um, So at the end of the movie, we asked how, you know, what everybody thought. And it got the appropriate, very quiet thumbs up from my older daughter. So um, but we did talk about it a little bit later. And I'll tell you, I think the the ending credits And the final, so there was one particular guy where we didn't see him gain his freedom during the the Mm -hmm. telling of the story, but sort of like the post, like where they are now, they show that he actually did finally get out just a couple of years ago. Right. That, that is when I was just like, that's when I lost it. Yeah. That, and then there was a scene with um, Walter McMillan's young daughter where she kind of breaks down during the process of trying to gain his freedom. Those were the two scenes that killed me. And I'm like. Oh, screw it. Cry. <laughs> if I'm supposed to be wholehearted this year, I'm just going to go ahead and cry. Here hey, we go. <laughs> the theater's dark. It's okay. Yes. My, but I don't know about you. My kids always like to go, I, I saw you wiping your eyes. I saw you. And <laughs> oh, they like, call yeah. you out on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you took your daughters. Um, 
I went on a date with my husband. We went and saw it together. But I want to go back and uh, take my boys. I would like to see it again, and I would like to take them. I think that they would um, appreciate it. I think that they would. It, it would definitely spur some good conversation. So, I say if your kids are tween age and up, I say it's appropriate and good good way to introduce them to some things. So, yeah, I I would consider going taking my daughter. She's been taking things very hard lately and been very emotional, and so I feel like. We would both be a mess. So maybe it's a wait until it comes out. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to just cry it out. Yeah. It could be a good, good bonding experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. or or it couldn't be. That's how girls are. That's how raising <laughs> girls goes, Teresa. I know nothing about that. <laughs> but you know what I think is is kind of interesting when you I hear you guys talk about it? Um, I don't know if anybody's seen The Green Mile, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like we used to make up movies like, can you believe the injustice in this? It's It's fiction. And right. then now there are all these stories that are nearly identical to that yeah. where you're like, oh, my gosh, like, why have we been why have we been making this stuff up when these real stories need to be heard? And yeah. It's almost like we we've sort of fantasized the whole idea or romanticized yeah. it even at times um, where there's going to be this justice in the end when that movie is showing that that's not the case all the time. And nope. And um, it takes somebody to really come forward and, and make it happen. The other and then we, we can stop talking about this. But the other big thing that stuck out to me was the statistic at the end about mm-hmm. the number of people who are on death row yep. that really shouldn't be there. Yep. yep. Um, and that hit me pretty hard, too. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, uh, you know, it's not it's not like you don't know these things. But I think sometimes just the way in which you can use a number or present a fact and how impactful it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, again, back to your point, Sharissa, it's not just about going and watching the movie. That's a great place to start. But how do we turn that into action? You know, can we find some some places locally where, you know, and like you said, we're not lawyers. Right. Um, but, you know, are there other things that we can do to help support the cause? Absolutely. Yep. Well, ladies, great discussion this week. Right. Good talking to you. Good to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we're so glad you joined us today, and we would love to hear your feedback regarding today's topic. Um, make sure you like, comment, and subscribe on social media. You can also email us at boundforjustice at gmail.com, or you can even leave us an old-fashioned voicemail by calling 614-450-0372. Until next week. See you later. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye.